With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. The first thing to say is congratulations to Gary Wilson. Uh, of course, he's won the Scottish Open. His first ranking title. He was on that short list. Um, it's a list you kind of don't want to be on. Uh, the, the best players not to win a ranking event. But it's also a compliment if you are on it. Because it means people think you can. And he did this week. And it's a bit of a turnaround. You know, the UK qualifiers, he was uh, a bit fed up. He threw his cue on the floor at one point. When Andres Petrov uh, fluked a frame ball. He was complaining about the toilet breaks. All that feels a long time ago now. It's only a few weeks. But it feels a long time ago. Because Gary Wilson played terrifically well. And as did Joe O'Connor, of course, who also got to the final. I mean, the draw did not open up. They opened it up between themselves because they beat, between them, in every round at the venue, they beat a ranking event winner. And, of course, Wilson's big win came against Ronnie O'Sullivan. That was the first sign, not only that he could maybe go deep in the tournament, but just actually his good attitude. I mean, in the decider, he won it in one visit. Joe O'Connor kept beating these terrific players. His great performance was definitely the semi-final against Neil Robertson he made that extraordinary clearance at 47 didn't sound much frame 7 needed big value colours had to keep on pulling out great shots and it was a disappointment I guess that he couldn't produce that in the final he did miss a few balls maybe the occasion got to him that's understandable it was his first final it happened to Wilson at the China Open 2015 he lost heavily 10-2 to Mark Selby hopefully Joe O'Connor will be back but I'm pleased for Gary I like Gary he's a bit of a character wears his heart on his sleeve loves snooker very passionate about snooker of course, had a spell off the tour. He was driving a taxi and, you know, maybe he wouldn't have found his way back on. But he did. And he proved once again how good he is. I was pleased to hear as well. He mentioned Stan Chambers, who did so much work uh, for junior snooker in the northeast, Snooker in general. Passed away last year. Would have been so proud to see Gary win. And, of course, now he's won one. He's proved he can do it. The question is... You know, can he go on and win more? And you have to say, that, you know, that the, the chances are there. They're difficult to win these tournaments. Very difficult to win. So let's not get carried away. But he's won one. He's proved he can do it. He's got all the spin-offs coming up. So congratulations to Gary. I thought the tournament was terrific. Genuinely a really great event. The snooker on show, really attacking. We had 86 centuries in seven days. It's a lot, you know. That's a lot of big breaks. Of course, Judd Trump made the maximum. Uh, we had upsets. We had... 
you know, high quality snooker. It was great. The, the crowd supported it in Edinburgh. Everyone raved about the, the Meadowbank Centre and obviously just being in the centre of Edinburgh, one of the great cities in Britain, if not the world. So, yeah, it was a terrific week. And the Scottish Open, I'm going to say it's the best Scottish Open. There we are. That's a big statement. I think there was a real good feeling about it. I think it's good that there was a gap of it. It used to come right after the UK, literally the next day, and it would take a few days to get going. But right from the off, it was a great tournament. So hopefully it'll keep the slot, it'll keep the venue, and uh, Gary Wilson will go there next year as defending champion. And by then, of course, he may well be in the top 16. I mean, he's now, I think, up to 18, so he's knocking on the door. We'll see how the season develops. But getting in those Players Series events... Um, he's certainly going to be in two of them, and obviously the Tour Championship is the big prize. You know, earning ranking points from those, he may well end up at the Crucible as a seed, and that would be uh, terrific for someone who, you know, he turned pro 18 years ago, 2004. It's been a long haul, really, but he's done it. Congratulations to him. Thoroughly deserved. Now, this week's podcast is going to be rather self-regarding. I mean, people out there saying, so what's new? <laughs> but um, I did advertise this a couple of weeks ago, so... Uh, it's 25 years for me working in professional snooker. Uh, December the 9th, 1997, I walked through the doors of 27 Oakfield Road in Bristol. That was my first job working as junior press officer for the World Professional Billets and Snooker Association. I was at a university. It was very fortunate because I'd always loved snooker um, and I was looking for jobs in the media. And every Monday, the, the Guardian had a media, media Guardian section where it was basically media jobs. And uh, I saw, and this was in the summer, just after I left university, so it was very fortunate timing, I saw this advertisement for junior press officer at the WPBSA, and I thought, that sounds like the sort of thing I'd like to do. They were looking for a graduate, so it all kind of, the stars aligned for me. I was very lucky, got to be said. Um, I got the job, and that was my foot in the door. I did that for about uh, 18 months. It was a pretty... Um, well, what's the word? Uh, difficult time in the game. Uh, as there were many of those in those days, there were a lot of political wranglings. The players sort of had control of the sport, and but really, people in the background had, had control. Managers and hangers-on would get proxy votes for EGMs and AGMs and vote people off, and there was no sort of continuity in the game. People, and I do believe most of them were, were well-meaning ex-players and so on, would you know get on the board, become chairman, all the rest of it. But then... You know, it was very difficult to run snooker with all the politics and all the self-interest. Thankfully, eventually that all went away and Barry Hearn just came in, kind of abolished democracy <laughs> in a good way and just said, look, I'll run it and I'll run it properly. But it took a long time to get to that stage. So when I went for my first, uh, when I went for the interview, um, I was told that uh, this guy Jim McKenzie had taken over as chief executive and there'd been a lot of politics, but he was going to steady the ship and it would all be well from now on. And... By the time I actually got to do the job, so this is about a couple of, well, maybe six weeks later, he'd been sacked. <laughs> and a, a civil war, the snookers plunged into civil war. So it was quite difficult because you come in all wide-eyed and you're young and you want to do your best. It was quite difficult actually negotiating all of that. So after 18 months I left, I'd made a lot of contacts with the, the snooker media. I went freelance. I became talk, well, it was talk radio then. It became talk sport, became their snooker correspondent. Wrote for various newspapers, all sorts of freelance things, big and small, mainly small, it's got to be said. But anyway, I was there for the next seven years on the circuit as a regular journalist. And then my second big slice of luck, um, in 2006, Eurosport basically needed someone to fill in at the UK Championship because their regular commentator 
had gone to the Asian Games, which was on at the same time. I was given the chance to fill in that week, and I've been doing it ever since. So I was very lucky that that opportunity came up, and you know that's 16 years ago now. So I'm still commentating, and obviously branched out for for other broadcasters as well. So that's the kind of potted history, all puns intended. Um, so 25 years, it doesn't feel like it. It feels more like 50. No, that's a joke. That's a joke. Uh, it's been it's been enjoyable in the main. I have to say. I mean, obviously, there's days when you think, you know, this is <laughs> this is um, maybe not to what I should be doing. But overall, I'm really pleased that I've lasted the course um, and I've got to work with some great people and uh, you know, enjoying enjoying it as much as ever. So I, I asked for people to uh, get in contact with their own memories of the 25 years, and uh, this is not going to be. Um, there's no order to this. And again, people will be saying, so what's new? I'm going to read them essentially in the order they came in. So uh, I'm going to start with um, Christine, Christine Clements. Thank you very much, Christine. Uh, when you asked about people's best snooker memory, I immediately thought of the 2007 Masters with Ronnie and Ding. This was the final, of course. Now, this is, <laughs> this is a great start, actually. Christine says, I went to see Willie Nelson in concert in Belfast that night and taped the match on videotape. A long time ago, video. I remember being annoyed both things were on at the same night, but Willie Nelson wasn't going to be around much longer, and neither was Ronnie, because he'd walked out of a match a few months before and was talking about retirement. It's quite right, Christine. He, he was the UK Championship actually a few weeks before, and he ended up, he turned up at the Masters wearing this I Love Snooker t-shirt to, to sort of reassure everybody. <laughs> Basically, we'd just been told to wear it. Anyway, Christine continues, I remember being surprised the tape had worked and sat amazed at the drama of a very young ding trying to shake hands early and the ensuing manhugs. People talk a lot about Ronnie being annoying nowadays, but I can't imagine anyone who watched that match not loving that man forever. Actually loving both of them forever, because I've loved Ding ever since that night too. The Ronnie hero worship, the weight of Chinese expectation, the nervous eye movement, all unforgettable. Pure, emotion-driven email, no actual snooker content at all. No, there's plenty there, Christy. Willie Nelson got in. Uh, congrats on your 25th anniversary. Well done. Hope many more happy years ahead of you. Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, I thought I would also reflect on some of the players or, or got to know and, 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 and observe and Ronnie obviously in, in the last quarter of a century has been the biggest name it's actually his birthday today as I record this 47 and he's world champion and world number one and I'm not sure 25 years ago you'd have predicted that um, I don't claim to be his best pal that's obviously nonsense but uh, you know I've, I've had the opportunity to work with him at Eurosport and obviously interviewed him at various times at tournaments back then I have to say, he was not the nicest of people. He was young, he was quite arrogant, and also he was going through a lot of stuff off table. His father had not long been sent to jail, and he was in the sort of public eye, and he found it difficult, and he said all this himself. If you read his book, he talks about those sort of years when he was drinking a bit too much and doing other things, and, and maybe he wasn't the nicest person, but I think that has definitely changed. And you've, you've um, earmarked there uh, that incident with Ding when... Ding wanted to concede the frame early, and Ronnie had a kind of fatherly concern for him, put his arms around him, told the crowd. The crowd at Wembley Arena were not the nicest always, and he sort of told them where to go when they were being quite abusive to Ding. Um, and that was the nice side of him. And I do think with Ronnie, look, I think a lot of people listening to this would agree at least three times a season he'll say something to really annoy you. But in general, Ronnie O'Sullivan is a very warm-hearted individual. And I think if someone was in trouble he would definitely do anything to help them. And I think he's become... Well, he's become a great survivor of the sport, but at the top level, he's not just still turning up. He's, he's winning tournaments. He's an incredible story, an incredible player. 
Um, we're lucky to have him, you know, regardless of anything else. And whenever I've worked with him, he's been incredibly generous to me, um, genuinely. You know, when I've commentated with him, he couldn't have been nicer. So um, I'm pleased to see him continuing. And I wonder if you've still got the tape uh, <laughs> all these years. Probably nothing to play it on, I'd imagine. Now, Kelly Barker, one of the great uh, fans you've been on this podcast... Says congratulations on your 25 years in snooker. One of the best voices in the game, and your passion and care for the sport shines through. Thank you, Kelly. That's very kind. Your 25 years pretty much coincides with me leaving school and starting to travel to events alone and make my first crucible visit in '98. That was actually my first time working on the World Championship as well, Kelly. This event genuinely shaped the path I wanted my life to go on, and I've been every year since. Players, refs, other fans, and media folk have all become firm friends. And snooker has been a most wonderful part of my life for the last quarter of a century. This email, though, really is just to say thank you for your immense contribution to our great sport. And hopefully you'll stick around for the next 25. <laughs> well, thank you, Kelly. I can't promise that. But, uh, yeah, well, listen, that's very nice of you. But thank you to the likes of yourself as well, the regular fans who have supported our sport. Uh, we see a lot of the same faces, particularly at the Crucible. And that extends to people who also have contributed to this podcast. Uh, I did say this would be self-regarding. I did I did put that warning at the start. Um, yeah, because without the fans, I always say this, you know, the players love to talk about playing issues and formats and, you know, rankings. What they need to do during a match is turn around. And those people sat in those seats, OK, that's the reason you are earning a living. It's the people who come to support our game and, by extension, watch it on television. That's the reason it's a professional sport and there's a living to be made. Um, so thank you to... The fans, I, I get to meet them at various tournaments, always very um, engaging and interested in chatting about snooker. Um, that's in the real world. It's a bit different online, but uh, that's because that's not the real world. <laughs> now then, uh, let's have a, a look here. Now, I, yes, I, with the greatest uh, apologies. Now, e, I always say Ina, but it, I think it's A-N-R, A-N-R, uh, from, from Ireland. Uh talking about favourite players and uh, a list here Matthew Stevens, Robert Milkins Ricky Walden Tom Ford Yambing Town so there's a big uh, big sort of sweep of players there Matthew's obviously done great in his pomp at the turn of the millennium a Masters and a UK Championship and two World Finals he's been in the doldrums for a few good years but he can play amazingly talented shots he also pulls together some great memories of his tussles with Hendry the class of 92 with Ken Doherty and especially of his friend Paul Hunter Robert Milkins is a super exciting player. He takes on crazy shots. He can pull them off. You can always expect him to add to a highlight reel. He wears his heart on his sleeve, but always seems ready for the battle. Delighted for his win in Gibraltar. Ricky Walden is such a classy player. Has every shot in the book, but's played so well in matches. Has played so well in matches. He just has a lovely stroke to the ball, but always just seems a tad unlucky to make the full breakthrough. Ball drifting offline versus Ronnie. Semi-finals in so many events. He's back problems, but he's back and seems fit. I wish him the best. Tom Ford is the 147 king, can play the table brilliantly, can be a bit of a loose cannon, maybe pulls down his own confidence on occasion. He has great control when he's in, in control. Brilliant when he's on form, amazing long pots, tricky positional shots. Yan Bing Tao is a rising star who I think needs to cement his position in the top 16. I hope he finds the heart he had in his match against Selby at the Worlds this year, one of my favourite matches in recent years. He has a solid game, great touch when it's a plain ball strike, winner of the Masters, hope he finds winning form soon. So that's, uh, I suppose, your favourite players over the last 25 years. Thank you. We're going to rush on. Not rush on, but we're going to get on with the next email because we've got plenty to get through. And thank you for everyone who's uh, emailed in. Matt Pickles. Congrats on the 25 years in snooker. A real milestone. 
thought I'd share my memory of my first ever visit to the Crucible and what an inauguration it was. I was 15. I'd been given semi-final tickets for my birthday and I was very excited. The year was 1999 and as luck would have it, I was watching O'Sullivan v Hendry in the semis. It was 10am on the final day and I had no idea what we were in store for. Five centuries and eight frames and Ronnie missed the final pink for a 147. I was so buzzing on the journey home. It really was, as Clive Everton put it, snooker from the gods. Even though Hendry won that match and won the tournament, looking back it struck me as the real moment that the class of 92 came of age, as the other semi-final featured Higgins and Williams. I suppose you remember that match as well. I do. Well, I remember both matches. And uh, 99, as you say, that uh, Saturday morning session was extraordinary. Uh, Hendry still at his best. O'Sullivan, I mean, he already won tournaments, but he was becoming the player that he became, if you like. And, uh, yeah, I remember rushing in, actually, because Ronnie was on a maximum, and I rushed in in time to see him miss the pink. I was in the photographer's booth. Uh, that's my memory. Let's talk about Stephen Hendry then. Um, obviously, at that point, he was... Well, he became the king of snooker again because he became world champion that year. He'd uh, he'd lost that crown in 97. I remember being there in 98 at the Crucible. As I said, that was my first world championship. And he'd drawn Jimmy White. Jimmy had had to qualify. And, of course, they drew each other because that's how these things work. And Jimmy was 8-1 up <laughs> after the first session. Extraordinary, actually. Um what was going on and I remember Jimmy I heard him on the phone in those days the mobiles weren't really a thing uh, and he was on the pressure of a phone and I don't know who he was talking to but it, but he said in that sort of that sort of um, deadpan way he said yeah he said 8-1 up I bet he comes back to win <laughs> which is obviously you know going back on their history he didn't of course uh, Jimmy won 10-4 gave it the oi oi at the end um, but Hendry obviously did win the, the tournament in 99 and that was his seventh, and it was a, a big deal, that was. Um, it had felt inevitable through the 90s, but obviously not winning it for a couple of years, you started to wonder then. And, and his overall titles had, well, they started to dry up. The 98-99 season, uh, I was the press officer for the, for WPVSA, uh, the, the, the actual press officer, no longer junior, because the, the, the main guy had, had left by then. Um, so I went to every event and saw a lot of him. He lost 9-0 to Marcus Campbell at the UK Championship. But then, actually very quickly, started to win tournaments again. And he went into the 99 World Championship, having won some big events. He won the Scottish Open. He won the Irish Masters. And so, you know, he was every every chance that his confidence to return. But you mentioned those other three, Higgins, Williams, O'Sullivan. They'd all come good. They'd all won titles in the meantime. They were all knocking on the door of replacing him at the top. So for him to win that event, that's one of the great achievements in snooker. Not just because it's seven, but he's sort of holding off those other players. And I remember, speaking of holding, I had to, after he won, he came in the media centre and was doing various interviews. And uh, at one point I was given his cue to hold, um, which, you know, uh, it's quite a nerve-wracking thing because this is the cue that has just created history. Um, thankfully I didn't break it. But anyway, what was interesting was, I mean, Hendry, I always found... Um, a great professional. Um, he understood, as Steve Davis did, that as number one, as the figurehead for the sport, he was expected to do his bit, and he did in interviews, in promotional things. He was always very professional, businesslike. When he lost, he could be very hard to interview. He didn't say anything, but at least that was kind of honest. Um, and, you know, it could be difficult if you were trying to do a quotes piece. <laughs> but... It was still a story, and I kind of accepted that that's how he was. After he won the seventh, something changed definitely. I think he the intensity went. 
I think that he felt, okay, I've done this now. He actually said, you know, well, it doesn't matter if we ever win another tournament, I've, I've achieved this. Because I suppose at that point, it seemed inconceivable that that record would be broken. Of course, it hasn't yet been broken. It's been equaled this year. It's taken a long time, uh, over, t- over two decades, for it to be equaled by Ronnie O'Sullivan. So I suppose at that point, he'd beaten the, the Reardon Davis record and he felt, okay, I can relax. And he kind of did. And I think that's, that's why, ultimately, the titles dried up. He started becoming friends with players, Mark Williams and other people. And he became maybe a sort of almost a nicer person to be around, but the titles dried up. He retired somewhat prematurely, really. Of course, he has come back, but that's not really gone, gone very well. But now, Stephen is, uh, you know, the kind of life and soul, actually. You know, he used to be regarded as aloof. Now, you know, you'll see him and likes a drink, likes a curry, likes likes a good time. And that's great. It's great that he can enjoy his life, you know, after all the, the effort he put in. An incredible character. You know, you've got to remember, he started playing snooker at the age of 12. His parents bought him a, a table at Christmas. Four years later, he turned professional. He never played before. He started playing on a half-size table one Christmas, four years later, he turned professional and very quickly made an impact. That's pretty extraordinary. And, well, he is pretty extraordinary and his record um, deserves to be respected in the sport. I'm sure it is by when he listens to this. Um, but anyway, I, I, I kind of you know, get to work with him now on ITV and he's a uh, good company, actually, and just, you know, obviously has, has the record in the game to say whatever he likes. Now, Sat Jinder... Um, and I like this, has ignored the rules, which were the, the, the memories are from the last 25 years, and has, has gone, gone before that, and that's fine. I, I, I quite like that, because, you know, it's just a podcast, it doesn't really matter. So anyway, Satjinder says a few memories. Jimmy White's m- missed black in 94. You had a collective sign, the Crucible. Ronnie's 147 in 1997. Dennis Taylor saying, I don't believe this. Hendry's destruction of Ken Doherty in the 94 UK final. Seven centuries in ten frames. Ken laughing after the match with David Vine, saying, I was doing nothing wrong. I was breaking off and getting punished. Goodbye-bye. Well, thank you, Satjinder. And uh, as I say, full respect to you for not following <laughs> the rules that, uh, that were, were, were pretty loosely set. Jonathan Ford, many congratulations on the Silver Jubilee. Your request for questions, comments on your past 25 years in snooker, I'd like to ask, you joined the snooker world at a time in the game as press officer of the WPUSA that saw a great deal of political infighting, self-interest and poor management of the game generally. This must have been a tough time for you to endure. What are your reflections on that period, and did you ever think about jacking it all in after that initial experience with the press office in terms of your professional interest in the game, and instead doing something completely different? If so, what? Thank you for your time, and please keep up your hard work. Congratulations again on 25 years. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, well, I sort of did I, I did mention the, the, those struggles that you mentioned. In answer to your question... Do you ever think of jacking it in? The answer is yes, actually. I did. At one point, I did apply uh, for a job with the Labour Party. <laughs> yes, I did. Um, we're going off. This was the Tony Blair years, so a while ago now. Um, I was more interested in politics then than I am now um, because without being rose-tinted about it, I think in, in that era, politics was more about finding solutions to problems, whereas now it's about weaponising the problem to create division. Now, we're not a political podcast, but that's my view on things. Um, I think things have got pretty rancorous and pr- pretty rotten, frankly, in British politics. Um, but back then, it was slightly different. You know, we'd had years of Tory rule, and now we had a new government. And I did apply for a job with the Labour Party. I got an interview. Um, I didn't get the job. And I'm quite happy now that I didn't, you know, because uh, 
who knows what, what havoc I could have wreaked on the country. <laughs> and I would have missed out on some fine years in snooker. But there was a point where I thought snooker kept on kind of stabbing itself in the stomach with the political stuff. And it was hard at the time without any perspective to see a way out of it. And I felt I needed a way out of it at that point. But I'm perfectly happy that I didn't actually, in the end, leave because I would have missed out on the commentary and everything else. I should say that just after the uh, that I left the WPBSA, I started working with Clive at Snooker Scene. That was the start of my freelance years. I should mention Clive, obviously. Um, you know, he was already a legend in my eyes before I even met him. And I think it definitely influenced uh, me without really realising it. But certainly getting to work with him, um, getting to learn from him, was invaluable. Um, in, certainly in terms of writing and in terms of sort of the journalistic side. And he never offered me any advice on commentary, uh, which I took as a compliment because I think it meant that he felt I could find my own way of doing it. But when I started doing it, he did ring me up to offer some very uh, encouraging words, which meant a lot, as you can imagine, from you know the absolute master of the craft. Um, but I also want to mention Phil Yates, who, uh, you know, a long-time uh, journalist at Snooker Scene and, and, and on, the, on the tour. I was amazed... Um, when I sort of joined the, the press room, the extent to which everyone else relied on Phil for information, basic things that they couldn't be bothered to look up or just didn't know, they would constantly come over to Phil to check things and he would, you know, always help them out. Um, and I would go as far as to say in the, in the sort of media centre, if you like, the, the sort of the, the, the journalistic side of snooker in, the, in this period I'm talking about, it's 25 years, Phil has been the most important figure, actually, in terms of uh, his work at the Times over the years and, and various other outlets, radio, pretty much anything, his commentary. He, he, he was the one, I think, who sort of moved commentary on to being at times a bit more statistical and information-based, um, giving it more context. Um, so and it, it definitely helped me massively as well. So I wanted to mention Phil, who, uh, of course, also gave us goodbye-bye. Uh, the, our catchphrase at the end and maybe his most important contribution to snooker but those two Clive and Phil you know what uh, what absolute servants to snooker they've been over the years and and continue to be uh, we'll move on to Ian Jolliffe a suitable re uh, suitable I'll start again now this is oh, this is a great email because this this includes an irrational dislike of a player and we'll we'll move on to maybe discussing that a bit more but anyway Ian says, a suitably random personal memory from the last 25 years. In 1997, I was in the last year of university at Cheltenham, a town where my grandparents also lived at the time. Being a dutiful grandson, I used to visit them every week on a Wednesday afternoon. Neither myself or my grandparents were very talkative, so the conversation didn't exactly flow. <laughs> Except surrounding a shared interest of snooker, my grandma in particular loved watching it on the BBC. In my mind, it was always on when I visited, but I guess this would have been just the UK Championships and the World Championship I'm remembering. Both my grandparents would soon be asleep, <laughs> and I would enjoy <laughs> having the snooker on in the background while having my head in a history textbook. I, I can recall that my grandmother followed the crowd in having a young Ronnie O'Sullivan as her favourite player. She also had a seemingly irrational dislike of Nigel Bond. I'm sure he's a lovely chap, but she didn't take him for some reason. My grandparents would normally wake up during the interval where I'd be presented with a tray with my tea always consisting of a glass of milk, two pieces of toast and a whole packet of Jaffa cakes. Being a poor student, this is welcome 
as I could finish the packet during the week and save a few pennies. Anyway, after my u- after uni, my interest in snooker reduced somewhat. Probably only caught a bit of the World Championship final for many years. Like many, COVID lockdown caused me to reignite that Cheltenham-induced interest, which remains strong today. Happy if if obscure memories anyway. Well, thank you, Ian. Uh, now, there's, there's plenty here, but the, the irrational dislike of Nigel Bond, because Nigel is one of the nicest men in the world. I mean, he just is. You know, he's a solid chap, snooker chap. You know, never really upset anybody, apart, it seems, from your grandmother. Uh, but if anyone else out there has got irrational dislikes of players, I don't mean I don't mean rational dislikes. I don't mean you know, oh, he he seems a bit flash, or I didn't like what he said in the in that interview. No, literally, you know, you don't like his bow tie or his shoes, or something, just something ridiculous that is taking you against a player. We'd love to hear about that. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. It has to be an obscure reason. Nothing nasty. Just You just didn't, haven't taken to a player for some reason. Um, we'll maybe do that one week. Uh, now, Florian. First of all, I want to thank you for your outstanding contribution to the sport in the last quarter of a century. My two personal, thank you, Florian. My two personal memories from the last 25 or more, last, more like 20 years since I only got into snooker in the early 2000s of the opposite ends of the time span. The first is seeing Jimmy White win the 2004 Players Championship against Paul Hunter on Eurosport in front of his late dad. That was Tommy, who was a character in his own right. Uh, he says, I've been a huge fan of Jimmy's ever since. Being 39 years old and from Austria, with no access to the BBC in the 90s, sadly I never got to see him play in his prime. I've had to rely on YouTube and his autobiography behind the white ball for accounts of that glorious time. I'm really enjoying his second resurgence as well. Yeah, Jimmy's doing great at the minute, isn't he? It's fantastic to see, actually. Uh, Florian continues, the second is a 147 attempt in frame 25 of the two- 2019 World Final by Judd Trump which was my first and only visit to the Crucible. After potting 12 reds and 11 blacks, he was out of position, with pink being a much easier shot than the 12th black. While he contemplated playing the pink, I surprised everyone, including myself, by shouting out, Come on! Which can be heard very briefly in between Dennis Taylor saying, That's what John's thinking. Then there's the come on. He could nick my 10 grand here. Now, he's on YouTube, he sent me a link to this. I like to think... That made Judd change his mind. He potted an extremely thin black, raising the roof in, in the process, and an outrageous next red, only to miss the 14th red. This, as well as the whole Crucible experience, will live very long in my personal memory. Keep up the great work for the next 25 years, and all the best from Vienna. And there's a PS here. Um, he says, I was very inspired by episode 2017, Your History, and the idea of commemorative plates in the 21st century to create a Google Earth project of various historic snooker sites, venues and others. I've not gone very far, but I'm planning to expand it a lot in the next few months. Now, he sent a, a link here, and uh, he says, in case you're interested, I'll keep you posted. Well, please do, because the, the, no one else is doing this. It'd be fantastic to see the, the, the great places where snooker history has unfolded, actually marked, because, as I've said before, we don't have permanent venues. They're all venues used for other things. It's not like Lord's Cricket Ground or Wimbledon. You know, or Wembley. Th- these are places that just happen to have held snooker tournaments. So, if if, if you or anyone else can map them, that'd be fantastic. Um, that world final you mentioned, Judge Trump, John Higgins. That session, that Sunday night session, was like an exhibition. Um, and Judge Trump, uh, you know, <laughs> what a talent. I mean, when I lived in Bristol, when I worked for the WPBC, he was only about eight years old, but he was in the local paper every week, the free paper you got, with winning something or you know, creating excitement about something. Um, it's been great to see him become the player he's become. I think he's a terrific uh, talent and talisman, actually, for the sport. He's played snooker in a different way. He's an entertainer. He's on in, in that line of entertainers that we've had. 
Alex Higgins, Jimmy, Ronnie O'Sullivan, um, and a great player. And I think it's ridiculous when people get on his case. It happened last week. He was very disappointed to lose. Why shouldn't he be? Why, why shouldn't he be disappointed? He lost 5-4 on a respot. You know, of course he did the deaf and dumb act in the interview. Why shouldn't he? Um, that's what you want to see, isn't it? People, the, the fact that it care, that, that, that it matters to people. Um, he's a player who, or rather a person, I think, who's been a bit misunderstood by people. I think they think he's a bit of a flash Harry. He's not at all, actually. <laughs> he's he, quite the opposite. He's from a very humble background. His dad, Steve, drove a lorry. He used to drive Judd and Jack to tournaments every weekend and uh, instilled the snooker bug in them. Now, Judd has enjoyed, uh, you know, spending money that he's earned. Well, well, that's fine. He's earned the money. He can spend it on what he likes. And he's from the generation that, that shows people when he's on holiday and when he's driving a nice car. That's just that generation. But as a, as a person, he, he's incredibly polite, impeccably polite, actually. And uh, I think it's good that he has his views on, on the game. I don't always agree with all of them, but, you know, it's good that he's thinking about where Snoo can go. He's clearly got ambition for it. And it's been great to see him be so successful uh, one week by the way it, w- when we go to our premium service where you have to you have to pay us £10 I'll tell you all the players I don't like <laughs> yes I will oh I'll list them all no I, I'm joking of course uh, now Dan 1997 two years before Henry signed off the greatest decade with his seventh and last world title the 90s were great given the current world we probably didn't realise it at the time I agree with that and that's not just again rose tinted I think there was something about the 90s. Obviously, I was young at the time, so it, it, that does colour what I think of them. But there was a slight innocence. Technology was... This is me talking, by the way, now, not Dan. There was, technology was sort of emerging, but it hadn't taken over our lives. We weren't chained to our phones. We didn't have phones other than landlines. Um, the internet was kind of there, but it wasn't, again, clogging up hours of the day. Um, and we were heading towards the new millennium. There was excitement about that. There was a sense that we were kind of... I don't know, free-rolling towards a new era. Now, the new era, arguably, has not been great. Um, there's been a lot of challenges. There still are. Um, but it was an exciting time. Anyway, you know, this is becoming all our yesterdays. Uh, I'll, I'll just read the email again. The 90s were great. Given the current world, we probably didn't realise it at the time. I'd say that, though, I was a, I was a teenager and following Henry's... De- I, was, I would say that, though, as I was a teenager and following Henry's decade of dominance in my favourite sport. I continued to follow snooker and went to the Crucible for the first time in 2013. An amazing, unique experience, and I've been a regular at that and the qualifier since, except when COVID stopped us. Looking back, snooker has changed so much from decade to decade. The 80s with fags, booze and Chaz and Dave. Standards raised in the 90s, the expanded tour and professional approach of the 2010s. Where we are now with power scoring and the older generation still dominant, but for how long? It's still the sport we all love, though. Congrats on 25 years in the sport. Hopefully lots more to come. Yes, well, absolutely. Um, I, I, I completely concur with all of that. Richard Hamilton. Some memories from the last 25 years. John Higgins' first 147 in the Nations Cup was the first one I'd seen on the telly. Also, weirdly, remember, in the same tournament, a shot of Mark Williams, whilst Wales was on, eating pie and beans. And Terry Griffiths, in his dulcet tones on commentary, quipping, he's got to put a little bit of weight on Mark Williams... I appreciate how random that is as a memory, but it's a memory nonetheless. Well, thank you. I, I, you notice I didn't... I, I've got too much respect for Terry to do an impression of him there. That would have been bad, I think. But, yes, he's got to put a little bit of weight on Mark Williams. Uh, anyway, Richard continues. Paul Hunter's three Masters finals. I stayed up and watched them all as he was and remains my all-time favourite player. Ding Jim Wee versus Steve Davis in the UK Championship final. I remember Ding 
more than holding his own on the safety front. Amazing for an 18-year-old. These are a few off the top of my head, but uh, off the top of my head. Thanks for the podcast. Keep up the good work. Hope you enjoy a happy Christmas and a prosperous and healthy new year. Well, the same to you, Richard. You mentioned John Higgins there. I'll, I'll talk about John now because um, when I started, he was the coming man, definitely. Of, the, of those three from the class of 92, John, Ronnie and Mark Williams, he seemed the most likely to inherit Henry's mantle as the sort of the man, if you like, because he he had the game, first of all, the all-round game. He didn't have the sort of soap opera that was going on in Ronnie's life. Mark, at that point, hadn't quite yet emerged. He was starting to. He was starting to win the odd event. Of course, the Masters 98 was the real breakthrough for him on the respot. We're coming up to 25 years of that, unbelievably, in January. Um, but John Higgins, he clearly had something very special. He had that all-round game that at that age, we're talking early 20s, most players would not have, and indeed still don't. John um, has been a wonderful player over the years. Um, I think when he won that Players' Championship in 2021, that's probably the best single performance I've ever seen by any player to win a tournament. In every area, he was just unbelievable. Scoring, safety, his thought processes... His bottle, everything was just 100% that week. Um, and also he's been incredibly um, friendly to everyone really on the tour. You see the young players all sort of flock to him to, to sort of gain that knowledge. But also just for the guidance and the odd word here and there from John Higgins I think goes a long way. He's become a sort of fatherly figure on the tour. Um, and what I admire about him now actually, and he's, at the moment he's struggling a little bit for results, but... He's clearly someone who, if, if he had to stop playing, he would have, he could fill his life quite easily with other things. I don't think he'll be turning up at the age of 60 trying to, you know, go through Q school. I mean, none of that. I think he can actually, a little bit like Alan McManus, his fellow Scott, just put his Q down at some point and say, okay, that was great. Now what's next? Um, I hope that's not for a long time, by the way, because he, he still has a lot to contribute. He can still play very, very good snooker. He got to all those finals last season. To win a lot of matches, okay, only won the championship league, he lost the other five. But clearly, you know, the form is still there, it's just finding it this season. It looks like he's gonna miss out on the players' series events, which is unusual for him, he normally gets in everything. So this season he's turning into something of a washout, but you know, it he could come good at any time. I hope he does. He's always been very friendly to me. Um you know, he's not and this is true of most of them actually, he doesn't act like a star at all. He's very humble. Um, and yeah, some of my best snooker memories have been involved in watching John Higgins actually. Um, you know, just the all round game. We all like to see flair. Um, but I think snooker is such a sort of dense game, if you like. There's so much, so many layers to it. And John Higgins has all of them. And you speak to any player, they all put him, you know, very high on the list. I think most people, probably everybody now, thinks Ronnie's the greatest player of all time but in terms of a match player. If you had to pick one player, okay, to win one frame for your life, <laughs> which is not a great position to be in, I know, but if you did, I think most people would still say a prime John Higgins. You've got to go out there and win that frame. They'd pick John. And, uh, yeah, he's a great family man and, and, and his family have, have sort of cushioned the blows, I think, of disappointments over the years as well. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, we've, another player we've been lucky to have, and it's, it's true of so many of these great champions. You know, they've all had their moments, obviously, where 
you know, they've said things in press conferences or whatever, and you've thought, well, why have you done that? But that's just part of life. You know, that, that, that's, they're just small things. Overall, their contributions have been absolutely immense. Now, we're going international. Uh, Dave Daly in Seattle. Yeah, we're spreading our wings. Uh, he said, I'm originally from Dublin and I've been watching and I've loved snooker since the late 1970s, having first been introduced to it by the BBC TV show Pop Black. I've had so many amazing memories over the early years, from Cliff Forbin's Cruise for 147 to the 1985 final between Steve Davis and Dennis Taylor to Ken Doherty's winning the World Championship in 1997. I took a 20-year break during most of your 25 years tenure in snooker, having moved to the US, where snooker is not yet as popular. In 2019, I met Mike Dominguez, who owns Ox Billiards in Seattle, who is an American that loves snooker, and I fell in love with the game once again. We've hosted Judd Trump, Ricky Walden and Rebecca Kenner in the year that the Ox has been open. On to my favourite memory, which would have been, which would have to be the Crucible this year. It was Mike's first time ever at the Crucible and only my second. We travelled from Seattle to the World Championship in what we considered a trip to the Mecca of snooker fans. The first session we attended was Neil Robertson's 147. We could not believe what we were watching. Mike jokingly asked, does this happen in every session of snooker? But of course, we both know how rare and special that is, having only happened 12 times in Crucible history. From there, we had tickets for every day of the tournament and got to see some amazing intense matches, including that incredible semi-final between Mark Williams and Judd Trump that went to the deciding frame. And then, of course, we had front row seats wearing our USA Loves Snooker t-shirts, watching Ronnie win his seventh world title, although we must admit that Mike and I were rooting for Judd. We got invited to the after party too. Over the course of the two weeks, we got to meet, chat and get photos with several snooker personalities, including Dennis Taylor, Alan McManus, Ken Doherty, Sean Murphy, Joe Perry, Judd Trump and Jack Lazowski, to name a few. Only in snooker would you have that level of access to the professionals and have them be so friendly and gracious with their time. We didn't get to meet you, of course, but that's something we'd like to rectify in time. We went home to Seattle and raved about it so much that there is likely a larger contingent of US snooker fans that plan to travel to the 2023 World Championship. So watch out, we're coming. Love the podcast as always. Keep up the great work. That's Dave in Seattle. Thank you, Dave. Sorry I didn't get to meet you. Do give us a shout next time. In fact, hopefully, I'll, I'm going to be in America myself next year. So um, I may well pay, I may well pay you a visit because I've heard a lot of good things about your club. Um, I'd love to see it first up and I'd love to see a tournament in America. Um, I know there's been talks and, you know... We'll, we'll see how that goes, but that would be fantastic. It would be a sort of breakthrough moment for snooker. You mentioned some great names there. The, the players you list, I'll just read them out again. Dennis Taylor, Alan McManus, Ken Doherty, Sean Murphy, Joe Perry, Judd Trump and Jack Lazowski. All very solid snooker people there. Um, no surprise at all that they, uh, they've given you th- their time. And I'm glad you enjoyed it. I mean, to, to go there and see a 147 at the Crucible, that's pretty impressive stuff, isn't it? That's, that's good going and I'm glad you enjoyed it. You were there for history, of course. With Ronnie, uh, with Ronnie winning his seventh world title. Now we've got Ollie next. Excuse me. <coughs> Ollie, I'm 27 at the time of writing this, and my first snooker memories are of being very young, sprawled at home in front of the fireplace. There's all fireplaces always come into this, don't they? I remember watching snooker. This is me again now, uh, with my nan by the fire. But anyway, uh, I was, yes, snooker, first snooker memories of being very young, sprawled at home in front of the fireplace, only watching coverage of one of the tournaments the BBC hosted with my brothers and dad, although he was usually asleep. I remember Ronnie winning something, honestly God knows what year or tournament, and his winner's speech being dynamic and entertaining. Even at a young age, it was clear to see that he had something different to the other players. 
We also had a pool table, and two of my brothers went out and bought themselves cues, a Jimmy White and Ronnie signature edition, something or other, that both still in the attic, and I fanatically would play by myself. Me being ten years younger than all the rest of my siblings, I frequently had to entertain myself and would play out heroic matches, playing both the role of Ronnie O'Sullivan and myself, the prodigious young talent who would blaze through out of nowhere to win the whole tournament. Of course, my talent was not prodigious, I was bang average, but very much enjoyed it. Fast forward ten years or so, and I hadn't played pool, save for the odd pub game, for a while, let alone thought about or watched snooker. But when at the start of 2021 it became clear that we were headed for another lockdown, my partner and I decided to get a TV licence for the first time. We excited and flicked on the TV, and the first thing we saw was the 2021 Masters. Imagine my shock at seeing the same names and faces. It was a bizarre experience. I remember John Higgins because I always found it funny as a child how much his eyebrows moved and the fact his cue rubbed his chin so much. I was instantly hooked again and have since become obsessive enough to get Discovery Plus, follow live scores when out and about and even listen to niche strange podcasts. I still have a soft spot for Yan Bintao having followed his journey at that Masters. Thanks for the pod. I always enjoy it immensely. That's Ollie. Well, thank you, Ollie. And... Uh, Yes, well, it's interesting. A lot of people re- rediscovered snooker through lockdown and then stayed with it. And that, I think, tells you how powerful snooker still is. It does hook you. It hooked you at a young age. OK, you moved away and did other things, but you came back to it. And a lot of people had other emails come in that, that COVID lockdown. I mean, it was a horrible time. Let, let's be clear. We could have done without it. But one, if there was any, any good thing to come out of it, people rediscovered snooker because they were stuck at home. And snooker... I was aware, as we were commentating, was a bit of a lifeline to people during that time. You know, it was the winter. It was a pretty rotten time, really, let's be honest, looking back. Um, and I know parts of the world are still, you know, experiencing some pretty bad COVID situations. But snooker did provide entertainment. And credit to Will Snooker Tour, Matchroom, all the players, everybody involved in getting those tournaments on because it kept us all kind of going and clearly brought a lot of people back to the sport. Um, you mentioned Jimmy White there. I, I must mention Jimmy because um, he's been a, a, an absolute um, constant presence in in the 25 years I'm discussing. Um, when I started in the game, he had just sort of started to decline a bit, although he's had revivals and he's having another one now, actually. Um, but my first ever experience of, of speaking to Jimmy, I was really nervous. Not, not just because it was Jimmy, but essentially was, we were at the Grand Prix um, and... Before the match, a guy had made his made himself known to me. He had a disabled son, and he said he'd, he'd big Jimmy White fan. He'd love to get a picture with Jimmy. And I said, well, you can you know this is just before the match. You have to wait till after the match. You can't disturb the players before it. And I, I was just really hoping Jimmy would win. I think he played Shoker Alley. I don't know why I remember that, but anyway, um, I just thought I really hope he wins because if he loses, clearly he'll be in a bad mood. And then this this lad who's waited all night to get the picture might be disappointed, and it's just going to be terrible all round. Jimmy lost 5-4, um, and this was at a time where his form was starting to go, and he was on a bad run of results. And I thought, oh no, I've got to, you know, I've got to go and ask him this picture. He could, he could get bad this um, one way or another. But I asked him, and he immediately just said, "Where is the lad?" And he went and got a picture with him. And I just that from that moment, really, I mean, I'd always liked Jimmy anyway, watching him. But from that moment, I thought, "You're all right with me," because that was very classy, you know, to actually put aside his own disappointment, understand that, that this lad wanted the picture, and went and did it. And, and you know, I'm sure made, made the lad, and, and indeed his father's, his father's year doing that. Um, Jimmy is such a passionate advocate for snooker. He never complains about the game itself. He just loves playing still. And he's an inspiration at the age of 60 to still be practising, to still believe he can win tournaments. 
and a lot of people have sort of questioned that but the fact is he's still qualifying he qualified for the UK Championship he's qualified for the German Masters he's very very funny man on Eurosport you know on air off air so many stories just a great character wonderful um, character in our sport no, no one quite like him really um, as a person I remember me and Neil Folds and Jimmy actually we went to the Scottish Open one year on the train because all the flights had been cancelled and we had like four hours sat on the train with Jimmy just sort of observing him in the wild as it were and it was just hilarious sort of the stories and just, just sort of how he goes about things just very entertaining character really nice guy um, and well, we saw the reception he got at the UK Championship that wasn't put on at York people love him um, because they've been with him all these years um, and as I say still you know still playing good stuff which is incredible really they're just 60 Matt Tarrant from Derby writes brilliant work, work with the podcast always look forward to it memories I, sh- I realise now I should have played the old Barbara Streisand um, you know uh, the way we were memories uh, of course that was a famous snooker montage on the BBC all the all the sort of players going back over the years in the mid 80s and here's a here's a trivia oh, we'll get to Matt's email in a moment but here's a bit of trivia that uh, montage which is very fondly remembered it's on YouTube that was cut together by Ray Stubbs when he was working. Ray Stubbs went on to be a snooker presenter and a, and a general sports presenter, but at that time he was one of the, as David Ryan would say, one of the backroom boys. And Ray Stubbs cut that together. Uh, anyway, let's go back to Matt's email. Memories. Recently, re- relatively recent, but semi-final art at the Crucible in the August World Championship of 2020. McGilvy, Wilson and O'Sullivan v Selby. Wow. Raw intensity, rivalry, emotion, twists and turns. And in the McGill-Wilson decider... One of the best frames of snooker ever in terms of drama. The Selby interview after defeat was in some ways hard to watch, but fascinating at the same time. Fantastic entertainment with both matched, both matches gripping until the end. And on snooker's premier stage, the one-table setup in Sheffield. This is what great sport is about, and surely one of snooker's greatest ever nights. For me, yes, I'm old enough to be one of the 18.5 million. It beats the Davis-Taylor Blackball final. Of course, only one thing could top that. Sorry, but I have to return to the film of Rob visiting Yap with his Rob Walker visiting Yan Bing Tao's new Sheffield home. When my mood is low after a tough day at work, it's guaranteed to bring tears of joy. Priceless. Okay, it's a little mean to Rob and Yan, so probably not one to read out. Well, I've done that now. <laughs> but it's not true. I've only watched it the once, but it's very funny and lingers in the memory. Thanks for the for the work. Very much appreciated. Well, thank you, Matt. Yes, I, I, I've read that out, but that's fine. It was funny um, and, and bizarre. Yes, I mean, that, that day you mentioned, again, that was the Lockdown World Championship. Um, it may never have been on. The easiest thing for World Snooker would have been just to cancel that tournament and not have it. They took the risk of having it, and those that, that day, as you mentioned, incredible. Mark Selby, you mentioned there. I'm going to t- mention Mark and, indeed, Sean Murphy, because in some ways they come as a pair. They grew up together. They're the same age, basically. Um, two talented juniors. I think Sean more was expected, maybe, of Sean at that age because he had a kind of precocious talent um, and played in the Premier League at the time his, his father I think got sponsorship for the Premier League and Sean managed to he didn't actually no sorry he didn't play in the Premier League he played in exhibition frames before the Premier League but he got to play against the top players and clearly had a lot of confidence and a lot of talent uh, Mark Selby I don't think at that age you would have thought he'll be a four times world champion but of course what he did was worked unbelievably hard Unbelievably hard, you know. I think his story is well known, but it's worth repeating. You know, he, he's, his family was was not well off at all. They couldn't afford 
even the snooker club membership. But Malcolm Thorne, who ran Willie Thorne's, who's Willie's brother in Leicester, um, the Willie Thorne Snooker Centre in Leicester, he gave Mark free practice as long as he brushed the tables and helped with chores in the club. And Mark absolutely grabbed the opportunity with both hands. And what I like about the two of them is they both have a pure love for snooker. They both want to represent it properly. Um, they both recognise the opportunities it's given them. And Sean has become a terrific commentator. I'm not sure that's the road that Mark will go down, but... Um, of course, what Mark has is, the, uh, is the, that incredible Crucible record. Of course, he beat Sean in, in, in the final there in 2021. Um, so two players who I think, you know, if you were gonna, if you were a promoter, um, and you wanted a tournament where you knew you could have players who could interact with sponsors and just behave properly at a tournament, those two would be in some ways the first two names on the list. You can send them into a room with a sponsor. You can send them into an environment with the public. And they interact with them. I remember Mark Selby at the, at the China Open when he was still a teenager. I think he was 19. He beat uh, Hendry and O'Sullivan in Shanghai. And in between, or after one of his matches, he went out into the public area, the sort of queue zone as it were there, and just played played pool with, with the locals, you know. And, and there was no sort of separation, thinking, oh, I'm the star, I've beaten these top players, I'm going to keep myself separate. None of that. And there still isn't any of that with him. Uh, just two good blokes, I think. Um you know, obviously they've had various issues as well they've had to deal with in life, because everyone does. But in terms of their snooker, um, you know, two great names of the last uh, of the last sort of 25 years. I suppose neither turned pro, actually, uh, back in 97 when I started. But they they came through as youngsters and, and obviously have had great careers and continue to. Uh, Jay Brannan. And I like this, because Jay has... Given us some lists which we always like he said congratulations on achieving the milestone of 25 years in this great sport I've always enjoyed reading your written content since Snooker Scene blog began in 2006 uh, going back there the old blog uh, yourself and Phil Yates are now are now the best two league commentators around while your podcast set the standard for other snooker podcasts to follow I'll pay you another compliment in 2047 when you brought up your half century thank you so I put together a few top fives based on the last 25 years so these are the top Okay, top five list. I'm going to do them from five to one, Jay, to create a bit of drama, okay? Uh, it's just what we need after an hour. <laughs> okay, so top five players. This is the big one. So this is Jay's top five players in the last 25 years. Number five, Judd Trump. Number four, Mark Williams. Number three, Mark Selby. Number two, John Higgins. And number one, there's not a lot of drama here because it can only really be Ronnie O'Sullivan. Top five World Championship matches, okay? Number five... Barry Hawkins v Ronnie O'Sullivan in the 2016 last 16. I remember that match. Barry played brilliantly, actually. You know, it's still one of those maybe you wouldn't be expected to see in this list, but he played brilliantly in that. Uh, number four, Judd Trump v Ding in the tw- 2011 semis. Number three, Peter Ebden v Stephen Hendry in the 2002 final. Number two, Karen Wilson v Anthony McGill in the 2020 semi final, because we met, had the mention of that in our previous email. And number one, and I agree with this because this is the best final I've ever seen. Uh, Mark Williams against John Higgins in the 2018 final. I'm going to just break off uh, from Jay's email to talk about Mark Williams there because he'd been mentioned. Uh, here's what I'll say about Mark, and this is a compliment. It might not sound like one, but it, this is meant as one. Mark is. There's no hidden depths to Mark, okay? There's no hidden sorrows or, you know, sort of, um, you know, secret sort of things going on. He's the most uncomplicated person you'll meet. He's a funny guy, 
who loves life, who loves snooker, who loves just being around doing something he enjoys. He doesn't overthink things. He doesn't get anxious about things. He is probably, of all the players on the circuit, certainly the top players that you see, the most uh, like he would be in terms of how his image comes across. That's how he is in real life. There's no real gap between the two. How he behaves on online and so on, that's how he is in, in the real world. He likes to wind up. He likes to joke. He likes to be happy, actually, um, which is quite a good way to be, isn't it? He just likes to enjoy his life. And Mark is a great character, irrepressible character. Um, I think actually Twitter, and you, you know, social media has a bad rap, I know, but it's actually brought his character across. He didn't always come across in interviews. I think he was a bit closed off sometimes in interviews, didn't enjoy them. Um, but I mean, when he came on this podcast, he was one of the first players to agree to come on a few years ago. Very entertaining. Um, and, you know, a great player. Let's not forget that either. I mean, at one point, he was without question, the best player in the world. For a period of a couple of years, around sort of 2002, 2003, he did the Triple Crown, although it wasn't called that then. We won't we won't revisit that one. But he won those three in the same season. He won 48... He won his first round match in 48 successive ranking tournaments. Incredible. Um, and he's made a maximum at the Crucible. That respot final at the Masters proved his mettle. Great pressure player. And it was great to see him have his resurgence because he had sort of fallen away a bit. That 2018 World Championship obviously was the the real um, crowning glory of that resurgence. So Mark, as I say, uncomplicated character, um, just enjoys life. Uh, Always seems to be sort of looking for a a laugh and a joke. Um, Doesn't get too deep on things. And yeah, long may he continue in the sport, I think. Anyway, we'll go back to Jay's list. The top five non-World Championship matches. So we've done the World Championship. These are non-World Championship matches. Number five, Judd Trump v. Mark Allen in the 2011 UK Championship Final. Number four, Ronnie O'Sullivan v. Judd Trump in the 2019 Tour Championship Semi-Final. That was a great match. Ronnie potted a great yellow and cleared up to win on the black, 10-9. Number three, Paul Hunter v. Ronnie O'Sullivan in the 2004 Masters Final. Number two, Neil Robertson v. Judd Trump in the 2019 Champions Final. And number one, John Higgins v. Ronnie O'Sullivan in the 2006 Masters Final. Yes, well, there's a great list there. Um, you mentioned Paul Hunter. Um, we have to mention Paul because, because uh, he was a great player, a very popular character. Um, he would have brought a lot of people to the sport. A young, good-looking guy with a bit of personality. Um, loved life again. Obviously, what happened to him was utterly tragic. Um, we're going back now 16 years to when he passed away. Um, but one of the things that he did, I think, and he obviously won that Masters three times, and in that period, we're talking a period where there was a civil war in snooker, there was a threat for breakaway tour, and it was kind of nasty off table. And the BBC at that point could have dumped the sport, actually. They could have walked away. Um, they didn't necessarily need snooker then. They could have got fed up with it all. But players like Paul Hunter, Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, Mark Williams, Stephen Hendry, and there were others as well, Ken Doherty, there were other players at that time. They kept snooker going because of how well they played. Matches like those Masters finals would have convinced the BBC to stick with it. Uh, the players actually of that era, we're talking 20 years ago now, um, provided a very important service to the game by producing so many high-quality matches that actually we weathered the political storm. So by by the time Barry Hearn comes along to, to take over the game, there's a game to take over. Um, 
And that's down to the players, I think, more than anybody else. And Paul played his part. My word, he was a fantastic talent. Um, much missed still. People still talk about him. And of course, at the Masters, you know, the trophies is quite rightly named in his honour. Finally, from Jay, the top five biggest changes in the sport over the last 25 years. So, number five, the change from tobacco sponsorship to mainly relying on gambling sponsors, at least until Kazoo. Number four, standards improving. The top 16 at 25 years ago could hold their own now, but the quality of today's elite is generally somewhat higher, and further down the rankings, it's markedly superior. I completely agree with that. We've seen that, haven't we, with, with results recently, not least Gary Wilson winning the Scottish Open. Number three, Eurosport coverage being crucial for the growth of interest in continental Europe. Number two, the rise of snooker in China. And number one, Barry Hearn's takeover. Thank you, Jay, for all of that and uh, some, some great points made there. Cameron Hutton. Firstly, I'd like to congratulate you on 25 years as a journalist in the sport. I've enjoyed reading your insight into the many facets of snooker since I started watching it. Long may it continue. As for my own snooker memories, I've two memories I'd like to share. Both involve the same player, which is Judd Trump. The first memory of snooker was the 2011 World Semi-Final between Judd and Ding Wee. Back then, I wasn't in, I wasn't into most sports at all. I found myself more interested in Judd's surname, <laughs> the amount of frames that could be played, and being confused about the coloured balls being respotted. Nonetheless, this was my introduction to the sport and makes Trump the first player I ever saw on TV and likely points to why he was a firm favourite of mine when I really got into the sport. Flash forward 11 years and there I am in the audience at the 2022 Scottish Open. This memory is incredibly recent but still worth sharing. My first ever live experience of snooker was this event and lo and behold, Judd in the first match. I'm never going to forget that quarter-final with Tep Chire, as it had everything, all culminating in a respot decider. Whilst this was a loss for Judd, the electric atmosphere, and being in the presence of some of the best players in the world that day, will stick with me for years to come. Thank you, Cameron. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, an extraordinary finish um, to that match. I think Trump... <laughs> Objectively, probably should have won about 5-2, but I mean, that, what should have happened is neither here nor there. What did happen is he lost 5-4 on a respot. But I'm glad you enjoyed it, and uh, it's always great to see people coming to snooker for the first time and, and having a good experience. Now, Richard Bassey uh, is our next correspondent. I think many fans would struggle to whittle down a list of less than a dozen great moments from the last 25 years in the sport, so many to choose from. I'm going to go with one that really hit me like a train in the best way. It was the first match for Ronnie O'Sullivan in what we might call the Ray Reardon era. I believe it was midway through the 2004 World Championship that Reardon began his work. And after going through the first couple of rounds with one or two displays of erratic temperament, the quarter-final saw something frightening, that is, for his rivals. My memory of the match is that Ronnie simply went through the first session like he was in a trance. Anthony Hamilton, who succumbed 13-3, has since said it was the only time in his entire career that he knew he simply could not win a match before it had reached halfway. For me, having witnessed Davis's drubbings in the 80s, and then Hendry's, I'd grown accustomed, without realising it, to never feeling any sympathy for the man on the wrong end. They're all professionals, and they've got a general choice. Get better, or do something about it, or choose another vocation. But on this one, it was the only time in decades I've watched and played snooker that I felt sorry for the beaten player. It felt different, like Ronnie was cheating by possessing such sublime skill and unleashing it with such carefree abandon. You're simply not allowed to make the game look this easy. I really felt for Hamilton. In the past few years, what little footage existed on YouTube of this match has disappeared. There never was much, maybe three or four frames, but it was historic, given the context. The 17-4 defeat of Hendry in the semi-final is online, in full, where you get a substantial sampling of the trance-like state he ran through frame after frame. But nowhere does the quarter-final seem to exist anymore, which I find sad. 
I know he has since said he rates his form in 2012 as the best of his world titles, and he would know best. But for me, if 2004 isn't his best, it's the most mesmerising and, because of the written work, historic. I did say there are far too many moments of influence and contributions to the sport to whittle all the way down. So here are three massive contributors and their magic moments in brief. 2001-ish, Hazel Irvin begins presenting for the BBC. April 2010, Steve Davis gives us all one last hurrah, beating defending champion John Higgins to reach the quarterfinals of the World Championship. June 2010, Barry Hearn took a 51% controlling interest in World Snooker Limited following a vote. Richard signs off Long Live Snooker Scene. Well, of course, the magazine is continuing, and Nick Metcalf, uh, the new editor, his first issue is out this week, I believe. Uh, so uh, I have a column in that actually about, funny enough, and uh, talk about self-regarding. It's about twenty-five years in snooker, as if as if this wasn't enough. This podcast, uh, yes. Well, Hazel has been an absolute diamond uh, in, to come into the sport, and uh, her professionalism and her integrity um, shines through on the BBC. That Davis win, I remember, I commentated on it. It was incredible, uh, and, it, and afterwards, he, to get to the BBC studio, he sort of walk through. Tudor Square in Sheffield and, and it was like the Red Sea parting the fans just turning out to acclaim him incredible and obviously Barry Hearn taking over has you know has reinvigorated the sport um, we may talk at the end of the year about what needs to happen now uh, with the ongoing uncertainty over China and, 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 and the sort of uncertainty about whether there's a, there's a plan B at World Snooker Tour to actually um, boost the circuit a bit but that's for another time and the fact is Barry's changes have been Revolutionary. He's brought back ITV. He's solidified the Eurosport contract. He's done deals with broadcasters around the world. More people now than ever before can watch snooker. I know in some in countries we've heard from people, it's difficult, but it's so much better than it was. It really is. And the politics has gone away. You still get people complaining about things, uh, myself included. <laughs> but in terms of the actual sort of the threats of EGMs and all that, and people getting voted off at AGMs, that's all gone. And thank goodness. Thank goodness. Uh, now, we've got a couple more. Uh, our dear friend David Burney in Canada uh, it says this. Following up what we were talking about two weeks ago with Jim White and his great commentary work, he was telling me a story when I was in Toronto working with him. He did some commentary for Sky Sports back in the day. And he was actually told he didn't sound very British, so unfortunately he'd lost the gig there. Since then, he's done great work for the Moscone Cup. Now, I, I had no idea that was the reason. I'd be, I'd be surprised if that was the reason they got rid of Jim. I think it's probably more likely, and he, obviously he knows better than me, but more likely he was having to fly him over from Canada. Maybe he was <laughs> cost a lot of money. I don't know. But anyway, he was a great commentator, Jim White. He had great passion for the sport. He says, I also, include, I also included uh, a video of that idea I was talking about last time, about using the ball marker and Taylor's pencil to spot the cue ball. So feel free to have a look at it. Maybe it makes more sense. Uh, than my words because pictures can say a thousand words. Yes, I do. I, I do. Uh, I do get the get the idea of that. And uh, we, we've seen again this week uh, replacing balls taking a long time in that Scottish Open. Too long. The, the technology ain't really good, is it? But anyway, let's look up, not down. David continues. A great memory from format snooker from the last twenty five years. Well, I've been away from the game for quite a while, and that's a different story altogether. But I got back into it in twenty thirteen. A musician artist by the name of Brian Eno, yes, that Brian Eno, did an artist talk in Vancouver and said he's not really an athlete, but he d does enjoy the game of snooker from time to time. And this is big news, Brian Eno in being into snooker. But anyway, uh, David continues, that popped off light bulbs in my head and I remembered watching the game when I was young and loving it. So I went to go search it out and see what the scene was in Vancouver. It led me to participating in the BC Open 
as I went undefeated in coin tosses. I lost every match at the tournament. However, I still maintained the love for the game and wanted to help out to continue to grow the sport in Canada. I found myself helping out an organisation in Canada which led me to do some commentary work. My first gig was in Montreal in 2016 and there's another great story there. But my story for this question you asked happened in 2017. At the Richler Cup in 2017, I was getting ready to commentate on a Friday match, a good one, between two amateur Canadians. I was organising my notes, getting ready, and I looked over to the rows of seating for the audience and saw Daniel Lenoy. Now, I'm going to say that's Lenoy. I may have pronounced it incorrectly, but anyway, that's what, that's what I'm going with. He's a great Canadian music producer, musician, artist, and I was just tickled pink as I couldn't believe that he was there. And as well, funny enough, in, in, no one else in the room knew who he was. After a quick Wikipedia search, led some players and audience members to see what a prolific artist this man was. It was wonderful because I was able to talk to him about one of my favourite albums, Apollo, Atmospheres and Soundtracks, that he and Brian Eno had made way back in 1983 in Hamilton, Canada. This has been one of the great memories in the game I have so far, and there continues to be more as I keep being involved in this wonderful game. Singing a karaoke version of Paradise City with Rebecca Kenner at the US Open. So much fun. There's a lot there, isn't there? Brian Eno, this other bloke, karaoke. Uh, and he ends here with an extraordinary question. A question for you as well as the listeners. Who do you think would win a snooker match between Lee Marvin and Jack Palance? Well, <laughs> not a question I've ever given any thought to. I'm not aware of their either's prowess at snooker. Two actors, of course. Um, it's hard, a hard one to say. Jack Palance, I remember he won an Oscar and he did, and he was quite old at the time, he did uh, sort of press ups on stage. On that on that basis alone, I'm going to go with him. But it's, it's quite unscientific. Uh, anyone else with any <laughs> any thoughts on that? Let us know. I think we've got time for one more um, because we've been going a while now. We've been going almost another 25 years here. But anyway, we'll go with. Uh, I think we've read them all out. Actually, Alpha Bonzi is the last one that's come in. So Alpha says, 25 years ago, I wasn't into snooker. I only knew it through news reports, when my mum flicked through the five channels or when I flicked through the sports pages of the newspapers. This continued until 2001, when, when mum not noticing, I stayed up past my bedtime to watch O'Sullivan, who I'd heard about, pop the winning balls to win the World Championship. Now, the joke here, of course, would be that, that Alpha was 30 at the time, but I'm not going to make that joke, because that's, that's, yeah, it's not funny. Uh, anyway, Alpha continues, from then on, I was hooked... When the old Champions Cup appeared on ITV that summer, I watched as much as I could, even going as far to record the final on VHS, which I watched over and over. This went on as much as it could until I got to university in 2004, damn studies getting in the way of my snooker watching. Of course, at this point, off-the-table sponsorships, TV deals and tournaments were being lost left, right and centre, but on the table I stayed up late watching the four BBC tournaments and following the others on CFAX. This carried on until I graduated in 2007, Moved back home, tried and failed to find a proper job and started playing with my mates down the then local cl club near my house. Getting murked on the table, sure beat getting murked in the harsh, cruel world of work. Eventually I found a proper job, which I met my best friends who revealed, where I met my best friend who revealed he was also a big snooker fan and wannabe player. So we started playing down a certain club in North London. There, as well as meeting Anthony Hamilton and Martin Gould, we also went to exhibitions held by Ian McCulloch, uh, whose fat chance and no chance quip he made to another club player he'd just beaten still makes me laugh ten years on, and Tony Drago. We both left our old jobs and ended up getting another job I didn't really like, which to my irritation denied us the chance to see a Steve Davis exhibition. To make up for it, we went to the Crucible for the first and so far only time in 2013 to watch O'Sullivan make his big comeback after his year out and the first session of Mark Williams and Michael White. We managed to not book a hotel room quickly, hotel quickly enough, so I had to share a bed in the broom cupboard. 
And then we missed our train home the next morning. So a lot, lot in this, isn't there? <laughs> a lot of detail. Uh, anyway, Alpha says, This experience made me made us think we were half-decent amateurs. So we entered club competitions and both lost in the first round without winning a frame. This put an end to our blossoming careers and work made us too busy to carry on meeting up at the club. Same story, my local mate, who's now also too busy with work. My cue sits in its case, gathering dust. But my love of the sport has since seen me go to the Masters twice, to my all-time favourite days out, though the first time I went, I managed to get an almighty cold a few days later. They do say the, the Ali Pali uh, is a sick building. But anyway, uh, thank you for that. And uh, he says, thanks as always, and here's to the next 25 years. Well, that's very kind of you, and thanks for all your correspondence. Um, that's it, really. Uh, I'm very grateful to people for writing in for their memories. I want to mention two other players, actually. Neil Robertson, who in this period emerged as a great player. because uh, he's been world champion. He's been a multi-winner. His form has never really dropped off. He's won a tournament every year since 2006 of some sort. So he's never had a long period without winning. Um, and I'm sure that will continue. Uh, I think it, there's an argument to be made that in terms of his Q action, he's the best player in the sport. Um, now, that's a big thing to say. But in terms of pure technique, um, and, and clearly bottle as well, you know, there's few better than him, I think. And very engaging character. He came on this podcast. It's one of my favourite episodes. He'd lost in the Champion of Champions. I'd arranged it beforehand, thinking he would win. He lost, and I just assumed he would drive home. But he actually came over to me and said, do you want to do this? We did it. And it, honestly, if I hadn't wound it up after 70 minutes, he'd still be going now. His recall of matches is extraordinary. Um, and such a nice bloke. And, you know, you have to credit the sacrifices he made. He effectively had to leave his family in Australia and come to Britain and, and try his hand. Now, of course, he has his own family here. And all the success he has, he deserves. The other player I wanted to mention uh, is Ken Doherty, um, who, in every sort of role that I've had, has been so encouraging and so helpful. Um, when I was press officer, he did anything I asked him to. When I was a journalist, I used to write for Irish newspapers. And whether he won, well, obviously he'd be in a good mood, or if he lost, even if he was disappointed, he would make time to do interviews. You could ring him up at any point. Um, and, and still can actually and now I get to work with him on ITV on the commentary um, I would say of all the players that I've worked with over the years Ken is, has got to be number one actually in terms of every role playing being an ambassador the media side um, I, I've, I've worked with him on his book um, and just a delightful person and, and I had the great privilege of meeting his mother um, before she passed away and you can see where Ken has got it all from that um that generosity of spirit all came from her. You know, they, they grew up, um, it was quite a humble background. There was quite a large family in a small house, but his mother would take other people in who were struggling. She'd go around, give them meals. She was a very, in the best sense of the, the word, a Christian woman. You know, she would, she would help people and that, that has rubbed off on Ken and he, a bit like Mark Williams really, lives every day to enjoy himself, but he's very respectful of other people as well. Um, and has become a fine ambassador for the sport. He's become a senior professional. And the reason he gets so much media work is because all through his playing career, he was so good to the media. You know, he would make time for people. He would do interviews. So I wanted to mention Ken, because when I started 25 years ago, he was actually the reigning world champion. Um, so I had to deal with him a lot that first year. And I've never had a problem with him. Um, just a great guy. And so that brings us full circle, really. Um, Hopefully next week we won't be quite so self-regarding. I apologise for uh, making it all about myself, but I'm very proud to have continued 
um, over 25 years in various roles. Here's the thing, okay, and it's 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 worth saying this: no one's indispensable. Um, if I fell under a bus tomorrow, the, the game would carry on as if nothing had happened, and that's how it should be. That's how it should be because snooker is bigger than anybody, um, and the sport will continue. You know, we talk about some of the, the big names there. Sport will continue regardless of whoever's involved. But it's great to be involved still. It's a, it's a wonderful sport to be part of. Thank you to everybody who's written in and all the snooker fans that I've met along the way. And I hope to meet many more. In the meantime, we're proud members of the Sports Social Network. They put us in their little advent calendar they're doing online uh, this this week, the fifth day of Christmas. So that's nice of them. Um, so, yeah, check out their other podcasts. You can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Uh, I'm not going to say here's to the next 25 years because that seems absurd. But anyway, uh, time passes. Uh, <laughs> that, that's a fact. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get on with it, shall we? Next week it's the English Open, um, live on Eurosport and Discovery Plus. And uh, I should mention Eurosport, I suppose, at the end, because they definitely obviously have had a massive um, impact on the way my career went. Um, and their service to, you know, we talk a lot, I think, through a British prism on this podcast because I'm British and a lot of correspondents are. But the way they spread the snooker gospel around Europe has been invaluable. It actually saved the sport in some ways because it created a market for new tournaments that other broadcasters didn't want. And certainly when I was growing up, tournaments in China and the Far East, you would never see them on television. Um, you may, at a, at a stretch, see highlights, but that was it. Now, of course, you know, you're used to watching them live, and that's that's great. So Eurosport have been a massive uh, contributor. Rolf Kalb in Germany, Rudy Bounds, uh, Dutch commentator, Belgian commentator, and and many others around Europe who have uh, you know spread the word in their own locales, their own parts of the, the continent. Fantastic, and uh, I still enjoy doing it. Anyway, that's enough. I think <laughs> people will be saying, "Yeah, we thought an hour ago." But anyway, thanks for writing in. Thanks for listening. And as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over a 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.